Appreciate you being here today. Good to see each one of you. And we're looking forward to next week, Roundup Sunday. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, be welcome in the purple holes here. Uh, really exciting time. And so we hope that you'll be bringing someone with you. And uh, we'll just enjoy a great uh, day together of fellowship and, and fun. Turn with me this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13. As I kind of told you at the outset when we began studying uh, the book of Revelation, that we were going to study through chapter 3 uh, on Sunday mornings. And then after that, we were going to move it to Sunday nights, beginning with chapter 4, because it gets a lot more technical and there's, it just doesn't uh, project well for Sunday mornings. Uh, so, But we are going to be looking at some things related to end times over the next few weeks once we get past Roundup Sunday. We're going to actually be looking at uh, the rapture of the church and scriptures related to that in two weeks. And then we're going to be doing a, a four to five week study on uh, Christ's uh, discourse uh, about end times from Matthew chapter 24. And so we're going to be focused on that area for a little while. As I was thinking back a few weeks ago, kind of planning ahead for messages, I, I felt like, what, what do I need to do? I'm going to be finished with the, the, looking at the seven churches, uh, by this certain date, and there's going to be one week before we have Roundup Sunday. And this passage kept coming to my mind. This is one that I memorized several years ago. I just felt this sense of urgency. Everything that we study in the book of Revelations portrays urgency to believers and to the world, for that matter, to get right with Christ, but, but for the church specifically to get in tune with God and, and grow with a sense of urgency to become more and more like Christ. One of the problems in this day and time, and it's been true down through time, is that the church doesn't have the sense of urgency concerning God that it should. Now, we're urgent about a lot of things, but often growing to be more Christ-like is not at the top of our list of urgent matters. And it should be. It should be right up there. As we go through life, we learn to evaluate all kinds of different situations. Some situations call for calm they call for a steady hand, but other situations call for urgency, quick action. We've got to move. We've got to do something. If your house was on fire, that's not the time necessarily to remain calm. It's the time to, to get up and to get out and to get on. Call the fire department. Try to extinguish it if it's a small fire. But it's, there's a sense of urgency. And we can't just say, well, you know, I'm watching TV now. When this program's over, then I'll do something about the fire in the other room. Seems ridiculous. And it is. Well, the Lord is trying to convey to us in many places. In fact, in every book in the New Testament, it's conveyed to us that it's it needs to be a matter of great urgency that we grow to be Christ-like and we, we expect the coming of the Lord. Sometimes the circumstances we find ourselves in motivate us to immediate actions and we need to be, as Christians, say, okay, this is the circumstance, I am a believer, I see the signs of the times all around me, therefore, I need to act with great urgency. Firefighters go through a lot of training. 
Extensive training, in fact. And one of the things that is conveyed to them and pounded home to them is that seconds count. Firefighters are trained to drop everything, get dressed extremely quickly, slide down the fire pole, get on the truck, and head to the fire and be there just as as quickly as humanly possible. What do they do to prepare? Do they just say, well, you know, I think I'm going to be a firefighter. Okay, there's the firehouse. You just go in there and wait till the bell rings. No. They go through extensive preparation and training to be firefighters. They check and they recheck their equipment. They check and recheck their skills. They try to hone seconds off of their time of getting to a fire. They have to be in great shape. They have to practice their skills. They have to follow proper protocol. They have to develop a trained eye. And they have to use common sense because it's not only important for their success in fighting fires, but it's often key to their own safety and even survival in many cases. All of these things are essential to their success. It takes a lot of preparation to do anything successfully. Some things are skills that we master over time. How would you like it if you found out that your doctor didn't go to medical school? How would you like it if your pharmacist, if you found out, didn't go to pharmaceutical school? Or your veterinarian didn't go to veterinary school? Skills are developed over time. And to think that we could somehow just kind of stumble into becoming Christ-like and, and knowing the Bible and living for God and knowing what God expects is, is just plain wrong. It takes a lot of work to get to where God wants us to be. And we've got to approach that, that with a lot of urgency. Sometimes in life, We've got to be proactive and we've got to take action. Sometimes it is the only way we get anything done. Sometimes it's the only way we really learn. Mark Twain once said that he once knew a man that grabbed a cat by the tail and learned 40% more about cats than the man who didn't. Sometimes you just got to take action. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul writes, trying to convey a sense of urgency to believers. The urgent matter at hand there was the need to become more like Christ, their Savior, who was the only hope of the whole world. Becoming Christ-like is an active thing. Most believers fail to grow because they fail to uh, take the necessary action to grow. It's not a passive thing, but it's an active thing. If you think that, well, I'm just going to to let this kind of creep up on me over time. Well, it doesn't creep up on you. Not really. Not any more than learning to speak Russian or playing the clarinet. You've got to work hard if you're going to do something like that. We've got to work. When a person grows to become Christ-like, they simultaneously become less and less like the world. We've got to treat becoming Christ-like 
and less like the world with a great sense of urgency. Time is of the essence, especially as we move more and more quickly to the end of time, which we definitely are. I invite you to take your Bibles in hand this morning and turn to Romans 13, and let's look at verses 11 through 14, if you would stand with me in honor of the Word of God and its reading. Verse 11 of chapter 13 begins, And do this knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day." Not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And as we come before this great text, we pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts. Challenge us, Lord, to become more like you desire for us to be. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're seated. Notice first of all in this passage, there's a time factor. There's reference to time in verse 11 and 12, the first part of verse 12. The phrases Paul uses here specifically, such as knowing the time, or it's high time, or awake out of sleep, they all express a sense of great urgency. Time is limited. Opportunities are brief. As the saying goes, don't let opportunity pass you by. We can all think back to times in our lives where we had the opportunity to do something. We chose not to do it. We were kind of on the fence. And the opportunity, what? It passed us by. Paul is saying here to the church, don't let the opportunity to become more Christ-like pass you by because... There is not unlimited time involved. There is a limit on how much time you have. He says, do this knowing the time. Understanding, realizing a sense of time here. The word time is not so much about time measured on a clock or by a calendar, but it's really more of a reference to seasons and epochs and more kind of, of a reference to general societal trends. And so, when you see the signs of the time, when you see that it's the season, know that great urgency needs to follow. The idea of sleep, as he uses it here, is a reference to someone's spiritual convention. condition. We're not just talking about someone lying down, going to bed, and going to sleep. We're talking about someone's spiritual condition here. They're in a state of spiritual sleep or spiritual slumber. So when he says it's time to awake out of that kind of sleep, it's a time to wake up spiritually, is what he is saying. It's a time to uh, become alert, spiritually speaking. Sleep itself is defined as a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. That definition is definitely true of physical sleep. We'd say, well, that, we did that last night. We all slept. And that describes exactly what we did. 
But in a spiritual sense, in the way that the Apostle Paul is using it here, writing to the Romans, it's also an apt description of exactly what a person can do and often does do spiritually. They are spiritually speaking in a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to the responsiveness to the events that are taking place all around them. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14, Paul cried out to them, "Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you." This was not an appeal to the lost, per se, but to believers who were not really conscious of what was going on. The appeal to the lost has always been the same. Come to Christ, repent of your sins, turn to God. But he's writing here to believers who are not conveying the sense of urgency that was due not showing the sense of urgency that was called for in the situation. It is almost, it would be almost like if Paul said, well, I've got it. I've got the date that the Lord is going to return. Here's the month, here's the day. Here's the time even. And it was almost as though they were going to have to check their calendars to see if it fit with their schedule. So, oh, well, I've, I've got a lunch appointment that day. The Lord's going to have to return another time. And that sounds crazy. It sounds ridiculous. But that's the kind of thing Paul is talking about here. That you're living your lives. You're doing your own thing. And we do that in our world. We're busy. We've got almost every moment of every day planned. And if we do find a few minutes of downtime, we sit there and we feel like we ought to be doing something else. We've come to a point in this world where we don't even hardly know how to relax anymore. We feel a sense of urgency about doing things all the time. If we're busy, we're content. Now, we might complain while we're busy that we wish we were doing something else. But we don't want to just be bored with nothing to do. How ironic is that? We fill every minute of every day with activity. But yet a lot of the activity that we do isn't very important when you come right down to it. And Paul is saying, you need to replace some of the activity that you're already doing with the kind of activity that God wants you to do. Stuff that will actually matter in the scheme of eternity and not just for the moment. A lot of the things that we do don't even matter once the moment passes We watch mind-numbing TV for hours on end. We read things that are useless in the bigger scheme of things. Oh, maybe they give us a little bit of pleasure and a little bit of entertainment. But we need to spend more of our time doing things that will matter for all of eternity. And that's why Paul says to them, Awake out of sleep. Awake out of sleep. Your, uh, your state where you're unconscious of the things of God. The reason he gives this appeal in Romans 13 is that their salvation, that is the culmination of all, mainly glorification, was closer than it had ever been. There's a sense which 
Paul conveyed, he says, I have been saved. I am being saved. And I shall be saved. I have been saved as a past event. I am being saved as I become growing more and more Christ-like. But then he was talking about glorification. One day that the salvation that I have, that I know I have in Christ will be realized. I'll actually see it. I'll actually experience life with Him. The state of glorification. And that's what he's talking about here is closer now than it's ever been before. They were closer also, not only to God, but they were also closer to the end of their time on the earth than they'd ever been before. Did you know that you're one day closer to the end of your time here on earth today than you were yesterday? And we're all seven days closer than we were last Sunday. And you say, well, that's not very encouraging. I come here to be encouraged today, Brother Allen, and now you're telling me all this stuff. Well, it's the cold, hard truth, and it's true for all of us. And that's why we need a sense of urgency. We can't change reality. We can try to do, I guess, what the world does and not think about it, and therefore go on about our business and just act like we're never going to die or nothing's ever going to happen. But that's the reality. And Paul's trying to say, you know, face it or don't face it, but here are the facts. Every person will one day stand before God and they'll have to give an account for the deeds done in the flesh, both good and bad. Paul sought to live his life with a sense of urgency. And it was the driving before, driving force behind him doing what he did. As he neared the end of his remarkable life, we have some of the last words that he said. Second Timothy was the last letter he wrote that we have. And he wrote in that book, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved and longed for His appearing. His declaration here that the night is far spent and the day is at hand means that man's time, man's time is to seemingly get away with not heeding God's warning is drawing to a close. When he uses the word night, it represents the present age. Uh, it, it could rightly be said that, that we live in the age of darkness, the time of darkness. And I don't think that's a big surprise. I think the signs of those times are all around us, aren't they? We can figure out that we live in a dark age, spiritually speaking. All the sun may be shining when we walk out the door, but spiritually it's a dark age. Morally, it's a dark day and age. And we look back and we say, it's far worse now, it's far darker than it was five years ago. It's far darker than it was ten years ago and twenty. And it keeps getting darker and darker. Contrast this with the fact that a new day is at hand. A new day is dawning. It is the reign of Christ that is dawning. One of the most successful and uh, well-known 
political ads of all times was a 1980 ad that the Reagan campaign used. And the ad featured the sun coming up. You could see a sunrise. You see a paper boy out throwing papers into people's yards. People eating breakfast in a diner, drinking coffee, and doing the kinds of things that you do in the morning. And you see this, and then at the end of the ad, someone comes on there, a voice says, it's morning again in America. And the point of the ad was, is that we've been through a dark time, a dark period, and now it's morning again. That's what Paul is saying here. The night is far spent, and the day is at hand. In other words, night is just about over. The darkness is just about to dissipate and go away. And a new day is just about to dawn. The Lord is going to return. We see the signs of the times all around us. Unfortunately, very few people really have their lives in spiritual order and are ready for Him to actually come back. Very few people are actually packed and ready, so to speak, spiritually. Think about this. Think about the child's game, hide-and-go-seek. How's that game played? Well, everyone goes and hides except for one person, and that one person has to close their eyes and count to a certain number. And they count. And when they get to that certain number, they open their eyes and they say what? Ready or not, here I come. The Lord is saying to the church today, ready or not, I'm coming. Ready or not, here I come. And we need to be ready. If the church is not ready, how can we expect the world or anybody else to be ready? The church has got to be ready and project a sense of readiness in this world. Second thing we see in this passage is the behavior factor. We saw the time factor. Secondly, the behavior factor. In the last part of verse 12 and in verse 13, He calls upon them to lay aside the things that they are doing that are of no spiritual profit and are actually more consistent with the deeds of darkness. There are a lot of things that we do, probably, that we shouldn't be doing. In fact, there's some things that I know we shouldn't be doing. Why? Because they're more closely associated with the deeds of darkness than they are the things of the light. Just ask yourself when you get ready to do something, what's the spiritual value in this? What's the spiritual value in this TV show or in this book or in this magazine or in going to this place or buying this item? Well, we could reduce a lot of what we do that is, uh, uh, that is of no value if we would just simply have a better screening process in our lives. Whether people realize it or not, the Lord is grieved over our sins. You know, with anything, we become more and more comfortable with it as time goes by. Time goes by and the thing that used to bother our conscience and convict us, and we do it and we keep doing it and we keep on doing it, and we finally get to the point it doesn't bother us anymore. We're told, as Paul wrote to Timothy, that time would come that uh, men would have their own conscience seared with a hot iron. In fact, it's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit expressly speaketh, and in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. We live indeed in that day where many people's consciences have been seared 
with a hot iron. But he's telling us to cast off the wicked works of darkness. What makes them wicked? That we feel like they're wicked or because God's word says they're wicked? Well, we live in a world that only considers wickedness to be what they consider to be wickedness. They don't go and consult the Bible. They don't look at God's Word and say, well, what does God have to say about the matter? Instead, it's all about feelings. Well, we feel this way. Or this is just isn't right. Based on what is this not right? Or based on what is this the thing to do? Whether people realize it or not, the Lord is grieved over sin. Throughout Scripture... Darkness is used as a figure to represent sin. Crime is frequently committed at night. What? Under the cover of darkness. If it was something that people should be doing, they would do it in the daytime, out in the open, in full view of everyone. But instead, they wait till it's dark outside, the lights are off, people are asleep, and then they go and steal something, or they kill somebody, or they rape someone, or do some sort of, of, of act like that. Why? It's because they know on some level that what they're doing is wrong. Maybe they've done it before, but they know that it's wrong. It's not acceptable. It's not right. But yet the things that are right can be done openly in the day and in full view of everyone. And the brightest of light can shine upon it and it says, this is truth and it will stand the test. Job spoke of those who rebel against the light They do not want to know its ways, nor abide in its paths. Paul moves from the negative to the positive, and he emphasizes the confession and genuine repentance seen in the laying aside or the casting aside of these destructive works of darkness that many are engaging in. The works of darkness are sin. These are then to be replaced by the protective light of righteousness. Here he pictures a soldier who has dressed himself in party clothes. He spent the night in reveling and in drunkenness and all sorts of behavior like that. But as the day dawns, the commanding officer commands him to wake up. Take off his his night clothes, his party clothes, whatever, and to put on the armor that he needs for battle. We've got to be properly dressed. Armor is made for warfare, not for decoration. You don't make the, 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 the garments of warfare just for decoration. They're not made specifically to just parade down the streets in, although there are military and parades that are featured, but that's not why they're made. They're not just made for show. They're made to actually use in battle. Our Bibles aren't just for show. They're not just pretty books that we carry under our arm or they look good on our coffee table. They're called swords. The helmet is not just a hat. The helmet of salvation. It's for to protect our heads. Every part of our armor, armor as believers has a purpose. And it's not for decoration. The armor of light is the full armor of God. Which we are to put on in order to stand firm. To stand against the schemes 
or the crafty work of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 tell us, "...to put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil." For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places or in the heavenly realms. He specifically mentions some of the biggest distractions or hindrances or roadblocks that people face, including carousing and revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy. Paul saw himself as a sinner saved by grace. He thought back to his former life before he became a Christian, before he met the Lord on that Damascus road. And he thought about, how could God use somebody like me? And he had to remember that, well, the only way God's using someone like me is because He changed my life. If I tried to be the same old person that used to go by the name Saul of Tarsus, I wouldn't get anywhere. I'd fail all over the place. I'd fall flat on my face. But God changed his heart. He even gave him a new name. He was known as Paul. And it changed. Everything about him changed. And he went from being one who persecuted and killed Christians to the greatest apologist of the Christian faith. All because he encountered the Lord. You say, just meeting the Lord really did all that? Yeah, it did. It really did. In fact, I can't even put into words what all it really did. But talk about a change, a radical change. This man had it. And why should it be so different for us? Why should salvation just be like joining a club? Or why should it be just like uh, deciding to turn over a new leaf? Just some minor adjustment or tweak in our life. Why is it not radical like it was for the Apostle Paul? Why is it not such a big deal as it was for him? Well, it should be. And he's trying to tell us that he didn't didn't just say, this is all about me, I'm just writing a letter to myself here. No, he was writing from his own heart and from his own mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to convey how important it was for them to see their salvation for what it was. It was not a small thing. It was a huge deal. Do you remember what it was like to be lost? Think back this morning. Remember what it was like before you came to know Christ. What was your life like then and how did it become different? How did it change? If we think about that a little bit, I think we'll begin to see how we were sinners saved by grace. And maybe we didn't, weren't blinded by light on the Damascus road like This man was Saul, who became Paul. But nevertheless, if you are truly a born-again child of God, you look back to that time and, and you think about it, and it's hard to even explain fully what happened. It was a radical change. It was something that that maybe you weren't expecting, that took place in your life at a moment. Maybe it was at church, maybe it was at home. Maybe it was a family member or a friend that led you to Christ. But you knew it was real because it brought about change in your heart. Any salvation that is real brings change to our life. It's not just more of the same, it is actual change. 
The third thing we see in this passage is the Jesus factor. The Jesus factor in verse 14. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ represents the continuing spiritual growth of those who become children of God. Continuing, ongoing spiritual growth. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7 says, we're reminded there that we have been firmly rooted in Christ. And now our hope is being built up in Him. When you build a building or a house, you start with what? You start with a foundation. You don't start with the roof. You start with the foundation. And you lay a firm foundation, a solid foundation, that will support the structure that you're building. Then you add the walls. You frame it in. Then you add the trusses or the rafters. You put the roof on it. You put the siding on. You put up the drywall on the inside. You hang doors. You finish it in every way. But it's all built upon what? That foundation. And that's what Colossians 2.7 is telling us. Having been firmly rooted in Christ. Having a firm foundation in Christ. Now we see that our hope is then being built upon Him. He is the foundation. He is what? The chief cornerstone in which the whole building is put together and fitted together. The longer we serve Christ, the more His character becomes our own. Godly men and godly women only become that way by serving Him year after year. We've all uh, had some older, saintly type person have a heavy influence on our life. And it could have been a family member. It might have been one of our parents. It might have been a grandparent. It might have been a Sunday school teacher. It might have been a deacon at our home church or something. It could have been a neighbor. It could have been a lot of people. Someone who just... Their presence, you just, when they were there, you just felt the presence of God. You knew that they spent time with Him in prayer. You knew that they knew the Word. If you, if you didn't understand something in the Bible, you could take it to them and they could explain it to you. Somebody that if you were going through a tough time, you could say, would you pray for me about this? And you knew that they would pray for you and you felt confident that God heard their prayers. We've all had people like that in our life that meant so much to us. Well, godly men and godly women only get to be that way by serving God for a long time. They didn't just make a change last year and get to be like that. They've walked with Christ year after year, decade after decade. Like the old song says, the longer I serve Him, the sweeter He grows. And we've seen that Born out in many people's lives. The main culprit that keeps us from becoming more Christ-like is found right here. We spend much, if not most of our time, that is time in every 24-hour period, instead of growing to be more righteous and growing towards God, we're too busy making provision for our own flesh. We're providing for it. One way or another, we're putting our flesh first and everything else second, mainly the things of God. 
Most people, it seems, seek above all else to have their needs met. Physical needs, emotional needs, mental needs, every kind of need you can think of. Mankind is seeking first to make sure that his or her needs are met. And we're in continual pursuit of that. Advertisers cater to that. They cater to your desire to pamper the flesh and to fulfill the lust of the flesh. They do not want you to be satisfied with what you have. They don't want you to find satisfaction in God alone. Why? Because if you do that, they're not going to be able to sell you anything. Yet we're told to be satisfied with Christ and to spend our time pursuing the things of God and growing in righteousness. Are you willing this morning to stand up against the desires of the flesh? Stand toe-to-toe with the desires of the flesh, so to speak, and say, enough is enough. I'm tired of putting you first. You've been in control of my life. Even as a believer, you've had way too much influence. Way too much say. Are you willing to stand firm this morning against those desires and take a spiritual stand for God and say, Lord, I need more of You. I need more of You. You cannot come to Christ in the flesh. Oh, you can go through the motions. You can walk down the aisle. You can... You can do all kinds of things in the flesh. But the only way any person truly comes to Christ is in the Spirit. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them and instead turn to God. In other words, we have a spiritual problem. It has to have a spiritual solution. Have you come? to Him spiritually this morning. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before You, and we look at the urgency that the Apostle Paul sought to convey in this passage, as he said, and do this knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the wicked works of darkness. Father, we pray that You give us the strength to do that. The strength to live for You in a world that's not living for You, a world that doesn't care about You, a world that is growing darker and darker by the day, morally bankrupt, Seeking its own, pampering the flesh, fulfilling the lust of the eye, pursuing the pride of life. Father, it's hard to shine as a believer in this kind of a world. But yet we're called to do it. We're called to do it at school, at work. 
when we're amongst family and friends, amongst our neighbors, and even fellow church members. You're calling upon all of us, Lord, to shine for You. Father, maybe there's someone here today who doesn't know You as their Lord and Savior and Master. Maybe today You would lead them to come and make a profession of faith. Put their trust in You, Lord. Say, I can't save myself. I can't do anything to help my spiritual condition. Anytime I've tried, my attempts have failed. I've got to turn it over to You, God. You're the only one that can do it. Father, maybe there are other needs here today for church membership, recommitment. Simply just praying at the altar and saying, Lord, put in me a greater sense of urgency. Considering everything, especially the times. Help me, Lord, to live each day with a fire lit under me, pursuing righteousness. Bless now, we pray, in this time of invitation. We give it all over to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.